Hi, I'm Dr. Lakeland Hogan, gerontologist and caregiver advocate for Home Instead, and you're listening to Empowering Professionals in Aging, a podcast and webinar series presented by Home Instead and hosted by the American Society on Aging. This series was created for those who are dedicated to serving the aging population and who have a passion for learning. Working together, increasing our knowledge, and understanding the various perspectives of these issues will help unite professionals in our common mission to better serve older adults and the families who care for them. Throughout the series, we will cover a variety of topics, including medication management, end of life, technology, mental health, financial exploitation, and other important issues in aging. We hope you find today's episode enlightening. everyone and welcome. Thank you for joining us for today's webinar, Driving Safety for Older Adults, presented by Home Instead and hosted by the American Society on Aging. And now I would like to welcome our presenter. Dr. Lakeland Eichenberger is a gerontologist and caregiver advocate at Home Instead. She educates professionals in aging, families, and communities on the unique challenges that older adults face and the resources available to help them thrive. She has worked in the private and public sectors of senior care services and has spoken at national and international conferences on caregiving and aging, but serves as a resource to media. She is a board member of the National Alliance for Caregiving, board chair for the Dreamweaver Foundation, and vice chair of the Alzheimer's Association's Dementia Care Provider Roundtables. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Victoria. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's webinar. This is a very popular topic because I think it's a really challenging topic. I get asked questions about driving safety for older adults very frequently, and a lot of times families express just how hard this conversation is. And a lot of times, it's because so much emotion is wrapped up in the act of driving. And if you think about it, at least here in the United States, for many, driving equals independence and freedom. Uh, you can go when you want, where you want. And if you think back to your teenage years, I know for me, in my state, you know, 16 was the driving age. I could not wait to get my driver's license, you know. I was counting down the days, the morning of, I made my mom, you know, take me out of school so I could go get my driver's license because it meant I was free, or at least I thought I was, um, you know, still living under my parents' roof, but I could go where I wanted. I could go over to my friend's house anytime. I didn't have to wait around for my mom or my dad to take me. Um, and so that sense of independence that a driver's license gives us, I think, is so deeply ingrained in us uh, from a young age in our society. And, you know, if you think about today, even, I got up, I got ready, I drove my car to work. Uh, after work, I'm probably going to drive it to the grocery store, run another errand, I need some gas. Uh, so I'm going to do all those things on my way home. Really, still, my car equals my independence. And so as a person ages, you know, we, we, we do experience changes physically, in our mental health, and it can impact our driving. But it's not always a situation where we need to automatically take away the keys. I think that there's far more discussion that can happen leading up to that and some preventative things that we can do to make driving safer for an individual for a longer period of time. And while there are some situations where, you know, it is not safe and we do need to take away the keys, I want us to maybe think a little differently throughout this webinar today to go first to how can we prolong the older adult driving if it's in a safe way, uh, longer as opposed to taking away the keys. Because again, uh, transportation, there's a lot of challenges and difficulties uh, in access to transportation. Uh, and if a person does have to give up the keys, a lot of that transportation then falls back on the family caregiver. And that can be really stressful and overwhelming because often family caregivers are working, raising their own children, and so that added transportation for their loved one uh, can really be 
a lot to take on. And so uh, regardless of, of uh, whether or not we have to take away the keys, it's important to have these open discussions um, and talk about driving and make it a regular conversation so that someday when an older adult does need to scale back or take uh, retire the keys, then it's not such an abrasive conversation. So just like with a lot of things, the more we talk about it openly, uh, <clears throat> the more normal uh, it becomes to have discussions and regular discussions about it. So we'll talk about that today and also provide you with some tools and resources uh, to make that easier. So here's our objective. We have a lot to cover. We'll talk about signs that a person might be an unsafe driver. We'll talk about some common conditions and aging-related diseases that can impact a person's driving. We'll learn about the best approach to develop a plan to transition out of driving before a crisis occurs. And again, um, we, we also want to take into account isolation and loneliness, and that's why the importance of a plan is so important is because we know that those that have to give up driving are at a higher risk for isolation and loneliness and so we need to have that plan in place to reduce the risk of isolation and loneliness um, again if and when those keys need to be retired so that's what i hope to cover today but i think it's important to kind of ground ourselves in the prevalence of older drivers and when we think about older drivers you may have some negative stereotypes that come to mind. Again, I think popular media portrays older drivers as, uh, you know, low and, you know, there's the crazy old lady behind the wheel that's so short she can barely see over. Uh, but I challenge you to put those stereotypes aside um, and, and look at the facts. You know, we are seeing more and more people over the age of 65 on the road, and that's because our population is aging. There's just more people over the age of 65 in general. Um, and there's about 43.6 million older drivers in the U.S. Approximately 84% of them continue to drive. Uh, and I know many older adults that drive safely and effectively um, and probably will continue to drive into their 80s, maybe even their 90s. Um, but again, every older adult is different. Uh, one person at 85 might be safe to drive, uh, while someone at 65 might be unsafe to drive. So we really cannot allow age to be the defining factor of when somebody needs to stop driving. It really needs to be uh, focused on their, their functional ability, their mental capabilities, and those sorts of things. And we do see that about one in four older drivers, or they're, by, sorry, by the year 2050, there'll be one in four uh, drivers that, that is an older adult. So this is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and it, again, just that much more of an important topic. And one that we can start having conversations with our older loved ones as they age, even when their driving seems to be pretty normal, we can start talking about it. And the reason that, um, you know, statistics can, can inform us on um, potential risks for older adults on the road, um, and the statistics do show that older drivers are at a higher risk for uh, a crash that results in physical injury uh, and also more likely to result in a crash that is fatal. And so that's why it is so important for us to talk about uh, driving amongst this older population and, and talk about the risks because we see uh, that older adults are 1.5 times more likely to sustain a serious injury in a crash. Also, they're 2.3 times more likely to die in a crash. And what's interesting is motor vehicle injuries persist as the leading cause of injury-related deaths among those that are aged 65 to 74. And it's the second leading cause for those in the age category 75 to 84. And for that older age group, falls are the leading cause of injury-related deaths. But then car accidents are number two. So uh, it is something to take seriously. Um, and again, as we age, we're experiencing more changes physically, mentally. Um, and so 
we do need to pay attention to this. It is a very important conversation. But let's talk a little bit more about older drivers. I think, you know, there are some really positive things uh, when it comes to the population of older drivers. They are more likely to self-regulate their driving behaviors. Uh, they can realize when they need to kind of change and adapt and make adjustments. They're more likely to wear their seatbelts than younger generations, which is a great thing. Uh, we know that wearing your seatbelt is the best practice that can save lives. And older adults are less likely to engage in risky behaviors behind the wheel, like uh, driving at night, speeding, tailgating, consuming alcohol before driving. So these are great things. Um, and another important thing, of course, though, to keep in mind is that, like I mentioned earlier, if an older adult has to stop driving, then they're at an increased risk of isolation and loneliness because they're less likely to get out to those activities that are outside of the home. So this can increase depressive symptoms. So uh, while there's some positive attributes, you know, about older adults and their driving, we also really need to consider what taking away those keys um, can do for the uh, can do to the person's kind of mental health. And so um, we'll be talking a little bit more about that and, again, the importance of planning ahead in case someone has to give up the keys so that we can reduce that risk of isolation and loneliness. So I mentioned as we age, we start to see some changes in our physical health. We also start to see more of a prevalence in chronic conditions and medical conditions that can impact driving. So I'm going to go through some of those because I think it can be helpful in understanding how these conditions can impact driving. So of course, cognitive conditions, uh, it, can it can impact a person's attention, judgment, their problem solving, their reaction time, planning and sequencing, uh, their impulsivity, and issues with spatial relations, you know, judging how far in front of you the car really is. It might also um, lead to things like memory loss and loss of consciousness or control. And so this can really impact a person's driving. You know, it impacts how they're able to react in a timely manner. So much of uh, what we kind of do in our driving situation is a reaction to others. I remember growing up, my dad always said, it's not you I'm worried about, it's everyone else on the road. Uh, and he always said, um, you know, you need to be paying attention because other people aren't. And um, so you need to react when they make a driving mistake to keep yourself safe. And I've always remembered that. And so, um, you know, it, again, it's, it's these, these types of conditions that we need to be aware of how those can impact driving. Uh, and one of those cognitive conditions is dementia. And it's important to realize that just because someone has a diagnosis of a cognitive condition or dementia, it doesn't automatically mean we have to take away the keys. While often dementia is a progressive disease that involves a decline in mental abilities and a, um, a need to more and more rely on others as, as you progress through the disease, usually in the earlier stages of the disease, a person is still often capable of driving. But it's really important for those that have a type of dementia whether it's Alzheimer's disease, frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, for us to talk with that individual about driving from the very beginning and, and start to normalize conversations around driving and help the individual start to be very self-aware of when it might be time to give up the keys or maybe you create some sort of cadence for a regular kind of drive-along with or ride-along uh, with the individual to kind of assess their driving. Maybe it's every month, every couple of months. It, it varies based on the individual. If you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person. It impacts everyone very differently. And so, uh, you know, you have to really pay attention to the progression of the disease um, and how that's impacting their driving. Another chronic condition that could impact driving that you might not think about is diabetes. You know, one of the impacts uh, one of the impacts for, of diabetes can be related to vision function. 
So a person might have a decline in their vision uh, because of their diabetes, and that obviously can impact our driving. Also, if a person does not regulate uh, their diabetes, they could have a hypoglycemic incident uh, while driving, which could be very dangerous. So uh, again, that could be one condition to pay close attention to. We also have to think about our functional conditions and physical limitations as we age. Um, you know, we might experience functional uh, conditions that relate to some of the other chronic conditions. For example, in diabetes, often people experience neuropathy, which is like a tingling or loss of feeling in their hands or their feet. And think about how that could impact driving. You know, uh, your grip on the steering wheel, uh, your ability to feel the pedals, uh, the, uh, the brake and the gas pedals. Um, and so the fun we have to pay attention to our functionality uh, within ourselves as we age uh, to make sure that we're still able to control the vehicle. Um, and also, you know, things like our physical strength or our flexibility can also be limiting. You know, some physical limitations could involve things like arthritis uh, in our hands or in our feet. Um, some individuals are amputees, and so maybe they, they do not have an arm or a leg, or maybe they have a prosthetic. And how does that impact their driving? Maybe there needs to be some sort of um, an adaptation to the steering wheel or to the pedals to accommodate. Or if somebody has a stroke or MS or Parkinson's, how do the physical limitations of those or physical impacts of those conditions impact a person's driving? We also see uh, seizures, of course, you know, across the life course, seizures uh, put some someone um, at risk in terms of driving often. Um, there's a lot of kind of parameters around medications with seizures and, and the time uh, uh, requirements uh, that a person has to have without a seizure before they're able to drive and those sorts of things. So it's really important to discuss with the healthcare provider for all of these conditions, um, you know, what are the possible impacts to driving. Another one we might not think about is sleep disorders. If you have a sleep disorder that's preventing you from getting a full night's sleep, then that could put you at risk of drowsy driving or driving with fatigue, which some people say is worse than drunk driving um, because it leads to a higher risk of a crash. Um, and, and so those that have a sleep disorder, um, they, you know, you really want to talk to your doctor to have treatment uh, for that sleeping disorder uh, and to really avoid driving when drowsy. And so maybe for some individuals, there are times of day, maybe it's morning or maybe it's evening, where you feel more drowsy than others. And so it's really important not to drive during those times. Of course, also visual impairments. That seems kind of like an obvious one. Um, but there are a lot of age-related eye conditions that can impact a person's field of vision or the amount of detail that a person can see. And so this would be things like cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration. Um, these types of eye conditions can limit a person's uh, peripheral vision. It can cause spotting uh, in the person's vision. Um, and so it's really important to understand how that person's vision is impacting their driving. It might be uh, challenging for them to see roadway signage or to see other vehicles or pedestrians in the peripheral vision. Um, and so, again, very, very important. Um, another one that you might not think about is cardiovascular disease. Uh, that type of chronic condition often involves chronic fatigue, shortness of breath, dizziness, and so those are things that can impact a person's driving. Um, and so, again, with all of these conditions, it's really, really important to talk to a healthcare provider to see how they might be impacting the person's driving today in the here and now, but also how could it impact it in the future. And so, as families are kind of thinking about uh, driving and those sorts of things, if there is a diagnosis of any of these things, uh, that occur, that's a great time to start the conversation about driving. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to take away the keys today, but we can open up that discussion about driving um, and, and keep it open uh, for the future.
So there are a few more kind of warning signs of, uh, of, of an increased risk of unsafe driving. Uh, but again, before we jump to any assumptions that a person's no longer safe to drive, we should instead start a conversation uh, and try to optimize safe driving if possible instead of jumping right to that stop driving uh, kind of end of the road, if you will. Pardon my pun. I probably should have thrown in a few more of these roadway puns uh, throughout today's presentation. They're just a little too easy. Uh, but anyway, um, some additional kind of red flags for us to look out for are physical capabilities. You know, if a person has impaired balance just when they're kind of walking around in their living environment, uh, that might be translating over into their driving abilities. Also, of course, changes in their, uh, their vision, their vision impairment, also hearing impairment. Because if you think about it, so much of, of driving involves being able to hear things like a car honking or uh, an ambulance coming your way. So hearing does affect uh, driving. And then that functional impairment, uh, that could impact a person's ability to fully turn their head, to use the gas brake pedal. Man, there's been a few times where I have slept wrong on my neck and have a kink. And, you know, you, you, may, you may be able to relate, but uh, there's been a couple situations where I feel like I have to turn my whole body <laughs> to the side to see if there's any oncoming traffic because that kink in my neck is just, uh, it's too painful to only turn my neck. But some older adults have that kind of chronic pain and that functional limitation where, uh, you know, that's their norm. They always kind of have to turn their whole body because they don't have great function uh, in their neck to fully, you know, see that oncoming traffic. So again, those are kind of some signs to look for. Also, of course, these cognitive abilities, we talked about that a little bit already. Uh, decreased short-term memory, uh, an inability to recognize unsafe situations. Um, you know, some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease is decreased um, or poor judgment or um, a decreased ability to follow a process or to make uh, kind of decisions. And, and a lot of what we do in our driving requires us to make kind of split-second decisions. Also, uh, a person with cognitive decline, they might get easily distracted. Uh, and there can, again, be a lot happening, a lot that we need to pay attention to. And so that could be overwhelming to a person. And, and so if you start to see someone with cognitive decline that's impacting their independent activities of daily living, that things like um, keeping up with the house, paying the bills, preparing their own meals. Um, if you're starting to see difficulty in those other areas, it might start to be bleeding into their ability to drive. And so, again, that can be another sign that, okay, we need to start having some discussion here. And a lot of times I tell families, do a ride-along with your aging loved one. Um, you know, get into the car with them on a regular basis instead of you always sit offering to drive, have them drive. And that can be a great way for you to kind of assess how they are driving. But you also kind of need to keep in mind that they might be trying to put kind of their best foot forward uh, when they drive with you. They want to um, really pay extra close attention. So you might not be getting the full picture, but if you're starting to see any of these types of signs, it might be time to just have a conversation. So if they're not using their turn signals properly, if they have difficulty making turns or staying in the lanes, maybe they have trouble judging the distance between them and the car in front of them, if they don't respond properly to other vehicles, or <clears throat> maybe they um, aren't responding to pedestrians or bicyclists or other types of road hazards, of course, that is a sign that there's some impaired driving happening. If they're not stopping in traffic appropriately, they're not following the rules. I mean, who doesn't break a few traffic rules every so often? Uh, but if it's a pattern, if it's consistent, uh, if they're not driving at appropriate speeds, uh, I know that you know sometimes you'll see people in a you know 55 mile per hour uh, kind of speed limit zone, and someone's going more like 45. Um, and, and that might be because they don't feel comfortable driving at those higher speeds. Uh, and so for those cases, you know, maybe it's not that they have to start stop driving altogether, but maybe they start taking the side streets instead of kind of the, the, the main highway 
or interstate or um, those roads that are at a higher speed. So, so again, it's this, uh, these things don't mean necessarily that we need to stop driving, but maybe it opens up the conversation. Also, of course, if they have a history of traffic violations, crashes, uh, they've gotten quite a few warnings. Again, these, th these might be things that they hide from family members, um, but some things that aren't as easy to hide are things like an unexplainable dent or scratch on the car or the bumper or um, those types of things to be a way to kind of bring it up. Like, hey, mom, I've noticed a few more scratches on the side of your car. Um, can you tell me more about that? Uh, just try to understand. Maybe, maybe it wasn't their fault uh, or maybe uh, they're cutting it a little too close at the gas station. I'm guilty of doing that. Uh, one time I, you know, scraped up against one of those yellow cement um, posts that, you know, prevent you from hitting the gas, the gas tank altogether. Um, but, you know, those kinds of things, if they become, again, patterns, uh, are something that should be kind of a red flag. And there are some questions that can be asked, um, especially of the older adult themselves. And I think you might be surprised that the older adult's willing to talk about their own driving. I remember when um, some family brought up to my grandma the topic of driving, she was very willing to say, you know, I haven't felt very comfortable driving at night, so uh, that's something that I'm going to give up doing or I've started to... Um, I've started to cut back on driving at night uh, or ask for a ride in the evenings. And so, again, you might be surprised. You might also be met with some resistance, so I don't want to downplay that. Um, but ask them things like, have you had some incidences of forgetfulness or have you been getting lost while driving? You know, have you experienced significant change in your health or have you started taking new medications that you feel like have impacted your ability to drive? You know, are they feeling more uncomfortable or stressed or anxious when driving? Again, it might be, you know, driving during rush hour might be very overwhelming. Um, and instead, maybe the, the next step is only driving kind of on those off hours, avoiding rush hour in the morning and in the afternoon or evening, uh, and only driving again on those off times. Or have they experienced uh, any um, crashes or near misses, I know it says narrowly avoided, but I also like the term near misses um, recently because that also could be a sign um, that, that there's a greater discussion that's needed. And are they, do they feel like they're making any mistakes when they drive? And in a little bit, I will share a self-assessment tool that can also be really helpful. I'll share that in the coming slides uh, because, again, sometimes if we can get the older adult to start reflecting on their own driving, they might be willing to share some information about their comfort level or about changes that they feel like they need to make in driving. And that kind of lets the family off the hook a little bit. But I also realize it's not always that easy. And because it's not always that easy, we often see families come to us as professionals, as clinicians, for support. And so, a lot of times I even encourage families to seek out a third party to help with this conversation around driving. You know, it's a lot easier for an adult, an adult daughter to say, you know, dad, you remember the doctor said it's really no longer safe for you to drive at night or to drive on the highway um, than it is for her to say, you know, I need you to stop driving at night or I need you to stop driving on the highway. Sometimes again, that third party outside of the family, uh, it's easier to blame them than uh, to kind of take on that guilt. Um, and so that's why a lot of times they'll come to us as professionals in the field. Whether you're a physician, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, pharmacist, occupational therapist, social worker, uh, psychologist, you might be approached with this topic. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has partnered with the American, American Geriatric Society to create a specific guide for clinicians. Um, I have it linked here in the slide. I know Victoria also put it um, in one of the tabs that you have access to. So be sure to download these slides uh, so that you can uh, click the link to this guide. It's very comprehensive. 
Uh, it's a very uh, large document, but a lot of great information. It has information on screening tools uh, for functional issues that could affect someone's driving ability. It has helpful information on assessing the risk of driving impairment. It has ideas on how to intervene to optimize treatment and functional ability. It also has referral information for transitioning from driving, if that's necessary, and tips on planning and then that transition out of driving. So highly encourage you to download this guide. And I'm going to share some of the information from this guide on the next couple of slides because, again, I think it's really a great tool. Um, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, kind of a mouthful, um, but that organization, their website is fantastic. Lots of great tools and resources. So I would highly encourage you to just check out, peruse their website for all the great tools that they have. But, you know, the guide talks about screening kind of versus assessment. Uh, and this can be challenging because sometimes there's, or I guess there's not one kind of tool that rises up to the top that is the best to determine a person's fitness to drive. Um, but there are key functional areas that are really important for determining that fitness to drive. It's the physical capabilities, the cognitive abilities, and the driving abilities. And so when we screen, that's really when we are kind of identifying older adults that might be at risk of unsafe driving. We're collecting information, observing the driving skills, uh, getting a feel for their general ability to function in their activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living. And then assessment is more of that deep dive into the functional evaluation to really determine if those are at risk or those who seem at risk um, need some intervention. Uh, maybe it's an evaluation, maybe it's uh, some rehabilitation. Um, and there are people that help with this more in-depth assessment. They're called driver rehabilitation specialists. Um, and they can conduct that clinical assessment. Uh, they can do on-road evaluations, provide recommendations. These are a great resource. Um, and there is a way you can search on uh, that website that I mentioned uh, for these types of specialists in your area. Um, and again, um, their goal is to assess the risk and help make driving safer for the person longer, uh, if that's a possibility. And so I think that they're, again, an underutilized, lesser-known resource uh, that I hope folks will look into. Another one of the things that this guide goes over is that, you know, we should try to make these evidence, use these evidence-based tools and resources to help with our decision-making to determine the fitness to drive. Again, not defaulting to a person's age, automatically qualifying or disqualifying them from driving. And we should really look at the various levels of prevention. So that primary level of prevention, that is um, kind of being proactive. We want to prevent the loss of driving ability as much as possible. So exploring the options before there's really ever any issues with a person's driving ability. And so that's where this conversation can really be started very early on. Um, and you know, a lot of vehicles today, they're making them with more and more safety features. I recently just upgraded my 2016 Honda Accord uh, for, I think it's like a Nissan Pathfinder and it's at least the 2020 or 2021. And I'm amazed at how many safety features it has. I'm not endorsing any one vehicle. But when I was test driving, I test drove almost every mid-sized SUV. We're about to have our first child. So uh, I'm, you know, trying to find the perfect mom car. But what I was realizing is, wow, as a gerontologist, a lot of these safety features would be great for older adults. The backup cameras, um, the, um, the kind of the beeping that happens when you get too close to things. Now, for some older adults, that might be too much. It might be too overwhelming. But for some folks, it could help them drive safer longer. Um, and so it could be a discussion of, you know, hey, Dad, I know you're, you're doing great driving, but I have a pretty old car. Do you know that they have all these safety features? Would you consider maybe upgrading your car to help um, make sure that you're driving safer longer? 
I know that's not, uh, you know, the, the perfect uh, solution for any, for all cases, but it could be, you know, a way to just start the discussion. So what can we do to prevent or prolong, pardon me, prolong your driving ability. So that's kind of that primary prevention. The secondary prevention addresses issues that have already caused the loss of driving skills, and it's an attempt to restore them. Maybe it's through treatment or rehabilitation, or maybe it's adaptations to the vehicle. And again, that's where those um, those specialists, those driver rehabilitation specialists, can be really, really helpful uh, to, again, maybe help restore a little uh, of that driving ability in hopes that we can prolong their driving a little longer. And it may also look like things that we've already talked about, like stopping driving at night or only driving uh, on the off hours, not during rush hour, or maybe it's taking the side streets instead of the main highway, those kinds of things. And then that third level of prevention really occurs when a person has irreversible loss of driving skills. And at that point, we need to have a discussion about alternatives because driving is no longer safe. And so we have to put a plan in place for driving. But I think what also makes this conversation so kind of challenging is some of the legal and ethical considerations that we have as healthcare providers or professionals uh, in this space. Um, and what's challenging is even within each state, some lo local jurisdictions might differ in their laws and their regulations and their policies. You know, some uh, may have, um, you know, an automatic reevaluation for drivers over a certain age, um, and some may not. You know, in some more rural communities, um, I've heard caregivers be very frustrated because uh, they brought up their concerns to the physician or to the local law enforcement about their loved ones driving, and they, they don't really do anything about it. Um, and it may be that there's this sense of community and they don't want to upset people that they've known for their whole lives. Um, but, but again, there's these different um, laws, regulations, and policies. And, and some states, they do have uh, some mandatory reporting in these areas of driving. Um, and there is some, in some states, liability for failing to report. So, you know, as mandatory reporters of things like abuse and neglect, um, we might also have that same kind of um, moral obligation if somebody's unsafe on the road to report. Um, you know, especially we want to be sure that we're upholding public safety, especially if an older adult is, is unsafe to drive. And so, um, you know, I also I also recognize, you know, HIPAA laws are in place to protect patients. And so uh, family members might feel like, well, the doctor won't talk to me about my, my loved one's driving because I'm not their healthcare power of attorney, or they still are um, considered, you know, uh, cognitively competent. And and, and I, I do remind families that you can talk to the healthcare provider and express your concerns. They might not be able to share any information back, but it can be especially helpful if, if your loved one has an upcoming doctor's appointment to call the healthcare provider and say, so I'm really concerned about my loved one's driving. If you could please address that with them um, in in their upcoming appointment, uh, that would be wonderful. That sort of thing. So sometimes you can talk to the healthcare provider; they just can't always talk back and share information back. Uh, but that's another tip I offer. You know, when families are noticing cognitive decline in their loved one, um, signs of cognitive decline of dementia, um, you know, expressing that concern uh, to the healthcare provider. But again, it's, it's such a hard topic. It's a hard to start the conversation. But a lot of times, it's more successful if we're able to engage the older adult in the conversation, if we're focusing on the driving performance, again, not the age of the individual, um, and we're, we're engaging them in the conversation. And we can use things like self-assessment tools, which I'm going to share one on the next slide here, um, that can get the person reflecting on their own driving experience. And I think it's really important for us to listen. So often we're quick to 
recommend or uh, family caregivers might be quick to jump to a solution. When maybe we just need to take the time to listen. I love the phrase, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Uh, we need to take the time to listen. You know, also, we want to focus on, you know, not, sorry, we want to not focus on taking the keys right away, but explore all reasonable options to keep them safe and mobile for as long as possible. And if you can approach it from that point of view, sometimes that helps to lower the person's defenses. Um, you know, you say, hey, I really want to talk about driving. We want to keep you driving for as long as possible. Uh, we're starting to notice um, some patterns. We want to get your perspective. Have you noticed any changes? And let's talk about, you know, maybe some adaptations that, that we can make to help you uh, continue to drive. And again, those screening tools and assessment tools can be great ways to help identify, um, you know, possible ways to help keep them driving longer. Uh, and again, I'll be sharing some of those um, in just a bit. And it's really important to have family or the primary caregiver as part of this discussion. Because as I mentioned earlier, if an individual has to stop driving, they're going to start relying more on family and relying more on that caregiver to provide them the transportation uh, to the places that they need to go and want to go. And so it's important that everyone's involved in that discussion so that everyone's on the same page in terms of expectations um, and that sort of thing. And then also I mentioned this earlier, bringing in a professional and a third party, a clinician, a geriatric specialist can really help with these conversations and can perhaps also provide some great resources and tools for the family uh, as they go through these transitions. So now let's look at this assessment tool here on the next slide. Again, this comes from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, uh, and the link is, is there. Um, so again, you can um, visit their website. So many great tools and resources. Uh, but this particular self-assessment has them assess their reaction time, their physical fitness, and their vision. So in terms of reaction time, again, while we're driving, it requires your attention beyond multiple activities. You're having to react quickly to situations without warning. And so it asks the older adult, like, do you feel overwhelmed by all of the signs and the signals, pedestrians and the vehicles that you have to pay attention to? Do you feel like gaps in traffic are harder to judge, making it more difficult to turn or to merge? Do you often get lost or become confused? Are you slow to see cars coming out of driveways or side streets or realize that a car has slowed or stopped in front of you? So again, helping them start to think through their own reaction time. Also physical fitness, you know, again, our strength, coordination, flexibility, that has a big uh, impact on how we safely control our vehicles. Um, so ask the older adult, do you have trouble looking over your shoulder to change lanes, looking left and right to turn at intersections? Do you have trouble moving your foot from the gas to the brake or turn the steering wheel? And then have you fallen down, not counting a trip or a stumble once or more the previous year? Because that could be an indication that there are challenges with their balance. Um, and then vision. You know, of course, good vision is essential for good driving. And as we age, we tend to experience changes in our vision. And of course, there's great tools and aids, you know, glasses, contacts uh, that we, um, you know, can utilize to improve our vision, cataract surgery. Uh, but some older adults, they might not really realize that they're having issues with their vision because, you know, it may be something that has just progressed over time that they've adjusted to over time. So we want to make sure we're getting their vision and their hearing checked regularly. Um, but asking them to self-assess, you know, do you have problems reading highway or street signs or recognizing someone that you know across the street? Because that could get to their um, ability to see detail. Have you had trouble seeing the lines in the various lanes or other pavement markings? Um, have you experienced more discomfort at night from the glare of oncoming headlights or traffic. I mean, I feel like on a rainy day uh, at night, it's it that all that light can be hard to kind of my eyes for my eyes to adjust 
Um, and so if you have any sort of vision impairment, it could be, you know, expedite or exacerbated, and it could really make driving at night that much more complicated or driving during inclement weather that much more complicated. We haven't even talked about snow and inclement weather, but that would be another example of you're having the discussion. Um, maybe that is another category of driving situations where the older adult decides, okay, if it's, if it's snowy, if it's raining, uh, if there's any sort of inclement weather, that's one of the situations where I'm not going to drive. I'll either wait and go do my errands the next day, or I'll ask a family member to help me. So regardless um, of having to stop driving or make modifications to driving, it's really important to have a plan. And I've said that a lot already, um, but especially if the person has to stop driving, we need to make sure that there's a plan in place. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but there's that higher risk of isolation and loneliness. One study found that compared to active drivers, non-drivers were twice as likely to be in the higher social isolation category. And also, um, you know, those that are 85 plus that were not driving were more likely to be isolated compared to younger um, age groups that, that um, are not driving. So the person is over the age of 85 and they're not driving, that's putting them at a higher risk. So we want to try as much as we can to put a plan in place to reduce isolation, to involve the older adult in the discussion and the planning, because they're more likely to buy into the plan if they're part of the plan. And one thing that I encourage families to do is to talk about all the things that a, an individual does outside the home. Maybe it's going to healthcare appointments, running errands, going to social activities, and kind of prioritizing those. Of course, healthcare appointments are very important. And, you know, you also want to ask, okay, you have traditionally gone maybe to five social activities every month. What are the top two that are most important to you? We want to make sure that you get to those two activities. We'll try to get you to all five, but at the very least, we want to get you to those two. So, again, having those kinds of conversations can help create that plan. Um, this, this next slide here um, some more tips on how to kind of develop that plan to transition from driving. Again, we want to ask the older adult how they're feeling about their driving, acknowledge their feelings. Again, we have to remind ourselves, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Driving equals independence for so many people. And we might be taking uh, for granted just how much independence we have because we're able to drive still. So we need to put ourselves in their shoes and acknowledge the feelings of, yes, I know this is going to be really hard, but we want to help find solutions to get you where you need to go. You can also, uh, you know, discuss with them the age-related changes or maybe it's the chronic condition that they're recently diagnosed with and how that might be impacting their driving. You want to, again, be proactive, as proactive as possible uh, about being a safe driver, prolonging driving as much as possible, but the reality is, is that many older adults at some point will have to stop driving. And so some things that can be helpful to talk about is talk about the economic cost savings and the benefits of not owning a vehicle. Um, and I'll, there's a cost kind of budget calculator tool that I'm going to show you in just a bit that could help with that conversation. You also want to make sure that you understand all the transportation options. We do know that there are challenges and barriers to transportation, which I'm going to go over in a little bit, but there are also a lot of options, which I will also cover on the next slide. And also, you know, we want to reinforce uh, driving sensation, which is the end, end of person's driving. Um, you know, some can be very resistant or stubborn. I've heard, you know, stories of families who have, um, you know, taken the car keys away or sold the car, and then their loved one went out and bought another car. And they were so frustrated. And so, um, you know, you might be met with some of these really challenging situations, but you need to be persistent, especially if you've done all the screening and the assessment and realized um, this person really is no longer safe to drive. And then, you know, have that plan for mobility beyond the driver's seat. Uh, make sure to follow up on any signs of isolation, depression, loneliness. So what are the options if somebody has to give up driving? Well, we know that family friends can help. Uh, a lot of times 
uh, church groups or community organizations have volunteer programs. Uh, you can also look into uh, rideshare apps. If you live in a community that has these as an option, things like Uber or Lyft. There's also GoGo Grandparent, which just has a phone number that you can call to arrange a ride. You don't have to have a smartphone to do that. You also can look into home care services, like the services we provide at Home Instead. Transportation is one of the, the staple services that we provide uh, to healthcare appointments, to social engagement, to run errands. So you can look into those types of services. <clears throat> there are uh, senior ride programs, paratransit services, and reduced fare programs in a lot of cities. So you want to be sure to connect with your local area agency on aging. Um, to see what are the options available in your community. You can also look into services that make house calls. So instead of going out to the hairstylist, maybe you find one that can come to the home. So they still get that social interaction with the hairstylist, um, but they're doing it from the comfort of home. They don't have to arrange transportation for that activity. There are also delivery options for things like groceries and pharmacies. Uh, that can reduce maybe the need to go out and run some of those errands. And then that way, family can then focus their transportation of the loved one to more of those social engagements that are really important. Again, that's why it's so important to talk about, okay, what are your priorities? Where do you want to go the most? And then also carpooling is not just for, you know, kids in school or soccer practice. You can carpool um, to family events, to regular social activities. Maybe there's a book club or Friday coffee with the guys, and, and maybe one of the individuals that still drives can pick up your loved one or the older adult and take them along. But as I mentioned, we know that there are transportation barriers. We know that there are limited services available, especially in rural communities. Um, unfortunately, there's just, we've got to solve for it, and I don't know what the magic bullet is, uh, but there are often limited services available in rural communities. We also know economic inequities exist. You know, some transportation options cost money, a significant amount of money, and so that could be impacting a person's ability to get out and about. Also, uh, a lack of translated materials for those that do not uh, have English as their first language, so they just might not know about certain types of transportation options simply because uh, it's not in their native language. Uh, and also, some of these programs, they don't have a lot of funding, and so they can't necessarily do targeted outreach to advertise their services. So a lot of people might not know about them. That's why it's really important to look into like your area agency on aging to see what is available. Also, we know that there's residential segregation and isolation. You know, some, uh, in some communities, um, people of, of various backgrounds tend to live in lower income neighborhoods where there might not be have many transportation options. And we also know that in some communities there might be vast distances or time to travel to get to places. You know, whether it's a rural community and the, the hospital is in the, the big city that's an hour away, or maybe you're in like a Los Angeles and the traffic is so horrific that it takes an hour just to go 15 miles. And so uh, those again are some transportation barriers. And we know again, that there can be some challenging situations. You know, an older adult might be resistant to this conversation, resistant to giving up the keys. Uh, so that's when we might need to seek out some of these professionals um, that have expertise in assessment uh, or go to that third party to help us have that really tough conversation. We also know that giving up the keys can, you know, increase a person's risk of isolation, loneliness, and depression. So we really want to clue in to those signs uh, and symptoms of depression. Uh, also, those with cognitive impairment. You want to, again, start that conversation early, right when the diagnosis happens, because as a person progresses, they're likely to experience more cognitive decline that's going to impact their driving. And then also, we need to be aware of older adults, you know, in general, that show signs of self-neglect, neglect or abuse. Uh, and sometimes when you have to take away the keys, um, you might not be able to get where you need to or get the necessary health care that's needed or, or family, while they might be well-intentioned and think, yes, we're going to get mom and dad all the places they need to go, but reality hits and it's just getting harder. 
uh, and so uh, there might be you know some unintentional uh, neglect that takes place and so we do need to be mindful that these situations could occur but again that's why it's that much more important for us as, as professionals and clinicians to learn about this topic to have tools and resources in our hip pocket that we can refer on to families to help them navigate these really challenging situations. Another one of these great resources, so in addition to the National Highway Safety Council, um, we have the Clearinghouse for Older Road User Safety, CHORUS for short. I, I work in this industry and I didn't even know about CHORUS until last year at the American Society on Aging Conference. They had a table I got to talking uh, with their representatives. They have so many great tools and resources. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to include this in today's presentation because, uh, again, sometimes we just don't know what's out there. And this is a great tool. So I mentioned the budgeting tool earlier. That is one of the great tools on here. It walks you through you know, how to identify current transportation costs, uh, also identify transportation needs, and then kind of estimate, okay, what are future transportation costs going to be? So that's one of their great tools. And then also another really awesome tool is a state-by-state -state search of the driving-related resources. So I put my home state of Nebraska in here, and you can see that it pulled up the state resources and the national resources. So then you can click on um, these resources and, and again, get that state-specific information, which can be very, very helpful. And then just a few more resources here. I guess not just a few, but there are a lot of resources here on this slide. We have, of course, CHORUS and that National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Also, the Occupational Therapy Association's Older Driver Resource Center. Occupational therapists are a great tool and resource, and so that is another great tool. You can see, of course, there's a Driving Safely While Aging Gracefully uh, tool, uh, a license renewal procedure by state, which can be really helpful if you're trying to determine uh, if, if your state has any specific age-related renewal processes. Uh, AARP has great information, of course, your local area agency on aging. AAA, uh, as you can imagine, has some senior driving-related safety uh, information. Um, there's a Drive 65 Plus where you can kind of check your performance. Um, you know, there's a, a whole website dedicated to, you know, before you give up the keys, what are some options? Um, there's the National Aging and Disability Transportation Center, which again can be helpful if you're looking for those options uh, for, you know, taking away the keys or ending driving, what are the options? Uh, and then there's Rides in Sight and Retiring from Driving. So again, all helpful tools. If you download these slides, which are available to you um, on the platform that you're using, then you can go click these specific links um, on on this slide here. But again, I want to thank you all so much. I had a lot of information to share, so I didn't quite get to all the questions, but if you have specific questions that you want to discuss, please feel free to email me. My email address is right there on the screen. Um, I see just a couple uh, of questions that have come in that I'll try to address quickly before um, we end today's discussion. And, and one is, you know, is there a recommended age to start the conversation? That's really hard. I would say no. <laughs> and here's why. Because again, it goes back to the person's functional abilities. So you might have someone in their 60s that has a lot of chronic conditions uh, and you need to start talking about driving. And then you might have somebody in their 70s or 80s that's very capable of driving. So I think that it's important to rate, normalize the conversation as much as possible, just kind of across the life course. I would say it's never too early to start the conversation about driving uh, and talk about, you know, keeping the person driving for as long as possible. Um, and so I think that's one question I might have time for today. So again, I want to thank you all so much uh, for your time and attention, and I'll pass it back um, for any, any closing remarks that ASA has. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure having you today, and we want to thank Home Instead for bringing this webinar to our audience. Please be sure to check out upcoming webinars, including Intimacy and Aging, How to Support Romance Across the Lifespan on October 4th at the ASAging.org website.
Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Empowering Professionals in Aging, presented by Home Instead and hosted by the American Society on Aging. For more information about Home Instead, visit homeinstead.com.